Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Everybody comfortable? If it gets loud, you can shut the window. And if it gets hot, you can open the window. So I'm very touched that there's so many people here, so many really beautiful people. And uh, tonight will be my last time sitting here talking like this, in this room, in this way. And uh, then next week, next time we meet, uh, we'll have a different schedule. There'll be no yoga, and we're going to have a, a, a time to do the precepts for people who've done the precepts course and then people who've already done the precepts course they can also come do the precepts again which I encourage and then we'll have a council uh, after sitting so that we can all process what it's like to have this change Um, and then in July uh, some people are organizing to have some kind of ending, but I don't know anything about it. (laughs) Except that if you want to know more about it, you should talk to Grant. That's Grant. (laughs) So I thought that we would end at the beginning, which is with the first koan of uh, koan curriculum which is maybe the most famous koan. Uh, A monk asked Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature? And Joshu says, no. So, how does this relate (laughs) to our life now? Uh, When you meditate, you follow your breathing. You inhale and you exhale. And um, for the first couple years, it's really good to feel your breath in your belly. And when people get good at that, 
I always recommend that they feel their breath behind their navel, where it's more subtle. And uh, once that gets going and you can concentrate, which most of us, our minds are so sloppy, we can't really concentrate on our breathing. But once you can, then I tell people they should meditate on their breath right here, right at the aperture of their nostrils. So it's right on your upper lip. And if you focus on your breath there, there's not a lot of sensation. So your breath gets softer and finer, and your mind is much more serviceable. And then uh, you get really quiet, calm. And this is called shamatha. And uh, the cool thing about focusing on your breath there and letting your mind get calm is then when something's arising, as it's starting to pass, you can notice it passing. And then the absence of what was there. So something arises, everything is very quiet, passes, and there's an absence. And you can't talk about it. There's just an absence of the something that was there. And it's not a nothing, and it's not emptiness. It's just awareness. And um, you can experience this. And usually when this happens, we start relating to our minds differently. There's a shift. In Zen, it's often called the taste that turns you around. Isn't that nice? Uh, you taste something, and it, it turns your life around, if you really taste it. Anyways, uh, when your breath gets quieter, uh, your breathing gets quieter, your mind gets quieter. This is the way it goes. So it seems like when you have a lot of emotions and when you're really stirred up, you need a lot of air. You need a lot of breathing. So your breath is really coarse all the time when you're meditating and your mind is busy. Has anybody noticed this? Like when your mind is busy, it's easy to find your breath. Because <laughs> your breathing is a little bit labored. You're manipulating your breath. But then what happens is, is as your mind gets more settled, your breath gets quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter. It's just so fine. And you can just sense the breath outside of your body on the top of your lip. And then, when you get distracted, your breath gets coarse again, which is probably a really good thing, because otherwise you wouldn't find it. So it's, thank you. Thank you to, and you have to say to your breath, oh, thanks for getting really uh, coarse again, because then I can find it. Anyways, this is the process of meditation. Many of us have heard this a million times. Uh, but also what happens when we start to see uh, the mind in a quieter state is we can introduce other practices. And one of the practices uh, that would be introduced when you can get calm is uh, a koan. And the first koan that's usually introduced is this koan, which is called mu, which means no. Mu in Japanese means no. In Chinese, it's wu, means no. And in English, no means no. <laughs> and this is how you work with the quietude, and it's also how you work with your problems. 
It's how you work when you're still, and it's how you work when you're moving. So, do you have anything good there, Celeste? Just a halls. A halls. No, no, I'm okay. Thank you. <laughs> so, when you have a problem, it's a problem because you're working from an old map. And you can feel those old maps in your body. You can feel them in your breathing. And by allowing yourself to be as you are, then you discover a deeper sanity that's underneath all of the outdated maps that you have. And for many of us, uh, the hardest path in our whole life is the path right into the center of your heart. Not the path to a new map, a shinier map, a better map. But to shift the way we're looking so it's not necessary to have the map before we get to the territory. What shuts down our experience, what shuts down our heart more than anything else is not letting ourselves have our own experience. What shuts down our heart more than anything is when we don't let ourselves have our own experience. We feel angry and I'm not supposed to have this anger. I'm a Buddhist. Or we feel needy. I can't let anybody see how needy I am. As if needy is not something in time. It's actually who you really are. They'll see my neediness. We feel like we need support, or we need to depend on someone, or lean on someone. And uh, we don't allow ourselves the experience. We condone ourselves. So one of the things this practice teaches, and one of the things koans open up for us, is they show us that it is possible to be unconditional with yourself. That's the punchline. It's possible to be unconditional with yourself. To trust yourself. So our minds have evolved um, from looking out for approaching beasts, uh, trying to find berries to eat, making sure we watch for weather patterns in the sky and in the wind with our bodies, making babies, finding the right mate. But actually, we see that our minds are still operating in this zone all the time. How fast is that car coming? Should I turn here or there? Am I going to catch X, Y, or Z? Do they like me? Will I get egg on my face? So we're still working from these concepts. And when we're still approaching our lives through these concepts, which we need, and orienting ourselves in this way, we're constantly stitching ourselves to ourselves. 
because we're only living in this conceptual framework. So koan practice is about shifting the way we're perceiving. And sometimes we think we can just shift it a little bit, like getting more comfortable with your body. Or um, going home to visit your family and not being a crazy person. Or maybe just being a little bit kinder. It goes a long way. But something else happens when we let a koan penetrate us. So a monk asked Joshu, Does a dog have Buddha nature? And Joshu says, no. So this is the most famous koan. And I don't know why it's famous, but for me it's famous because it was the first koan I ever got. And it destroyed me. Especially as somebody who's used to like getting someone and getting somewhere with it and uh, getting the somewhere with it to go somewhere else. So tonight we're going to keep company with no, with mu. Uh, if it works, you're going to breathe in mu, and you're going to breathe out mu, until mu is breathing, and then there's no difference anymore between inside and outside, and you and mu are not two separate things. When you go to the bank machine, you go to the bank machine with mu. And when you get groceries, Mu gets groceries. And there's no difference between Mu and the groceries. But it's important to understand that no doesn't mean no. No has nothing to do with yes or no. If you approach this koan and you just think in binary terms, then when you hear this sentence, no, then you think, well, it's not yes. And most of us, we hate no, because all our life is no, no, no. My son, Olin, who's a year old now, his first words are no, 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 no. <laughs> he walks around and he picks things up. He's like, no, 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 no. Because <laughs> if you don't baby-proof the world, you're constantly saying no all the time. So a lot of people first hear the con, and the first thing they do wrong, and they go, well, why not? Why isn't it yes? <laughs> And then they like do that. They're like, I'm just going to practice. Yes. You know. <laughs> but this is a different kind of no, because it's a no that doesn't judge you. Uh, the koan doesn't judge you. For people who are hard on themselves, this is the best thing about befriending your breath. Because your breath doesn't judge you. And meditation doesn't judge you. And if judgment comes up and you get distracted by judgment, then you bring in no. So that no is a refusal that doesn't allow the judgment about no. You don't need to manipulate your mind uh, to figure out or to discover the response to this koan. And you don't need to change the koan to really see the koan. And most importantly, you don't need to change yourself to get the koan. Usually, if we can't get something, we think, well, I just need to change myself, and then I'll get it. 
just be patient and bring the koan in and challenge yourself. And you'll see the koan will stay with you like the sound of Spadina or like the sky. Always overhead, always changing. Always meeting circumstances. Usually when we have trouble, we walk up the stairs to the penthouse and we try and control everything from there. Or we take on the role of the CEO or the CFO and we try to control everything from that position. But Mu is refusing that position. Mu is refusing the old maps. So when you uh, take in Mu, you have to breathe in Mu all the way down into your heels. So your whole body becomes Mu. I was reading a, a poem this week, and it had a wonderful line in it that there is always an image behind the image. Every time you look at an image, you're meeting it with other images. Every time you see something, you're always seeing it with language. It seems like if we don't have a language or a map for something, we can't even see it. So the purpose of Mu is to interrupt that, to get in between the image and the image, not to deny either one. So the best solution to use to get between things is a dog. A dog is the best solution because a dog goes up to a stranger and says, you're my favorite. I really like you. I want to stay with you. I'm going to go with you. And then two minutes later, the dog goes up to another stranger and says, you're my favorite. I really like you. I'm going to go wherever you're going. And then a few minutes later to somebody else. You're my favorite. Imagine if our mind was this elastic. Your heart was this elastic. Whatever shows up, you're my favorite. I really like you. I'm going to stay with you. Which is another way of saying, I won't abandon you. Imagine that, if you could say that to anything in your life. I won't leave you. So this mu is about being totally unconditional with ourselves. When something arises, you don't meet it from the penthouse. When something arises, you just <laughs> You have to meet it at its level. This is the Zen understanding of practice, and this is the Zen understanding of emptiness. The Zen understanding of emptiness is that the realization of the emptiness of something is a loss of our assessment about things. It's a loss of our assessment about ourselves. It's a loss of our assessment of whether this thing can do something for me or not do something for me. We're willing to go into emotions that we think will do something for me, 
And we're unwilling to go into emotions that we think won't do anything for us. So the first step in working with mu, in working with no, is don't chase after it. Same with dogs. When you encounter, don't chase the dog. Let the dog come to you first. This is my son's problem. Whenever we go to the dog park, instead of letting the dogs come to him, he goes chasing the dogs. My sister, by the way, has a dog named Country Boy. But I misunderstood. I didn't realize the dog's name was Country Boy. I thought she said his name was Crunchy Boy. <laughs> so we've been spending a lot of time with Crunchy Boy. And then finally my sister had to say, you know, I really have to talk to you about something. <laughs> the dog's not Crunchy Boy. <laughs> Apparently they're getting another dog now. It's going to be Crunchy Boy. <laughs> so the first thing is uh, to relate to the koan like breathing. right? When you learn how to concentrate with your breath, the problem that tends to happen for meditators is they go after their breathing and try and like stay with your breath and don't let anything else get in. You know, it's like I'm going to put in a 16-hour day with my breath. It's like you're like the banker putting in a 16-hour day, you know. Um, but actually, the way to work with your breathing so that your mind settles and your concentration deepens and stabilizes is it's just, you just go to a warm beach. It's like you go to a warm beach, you put up an orange umbrella, and you lie back, and you just watch the waves come in and watch the waves go out. This is how you have to meditate. A lot of people look at all of us meditating with good posture and they think, oh, I just need to be like really upright. And if I sit like Grant, then my life will be amazing like Grant's. But actually, they don't know that actually to mature your practice over the years, you have to just be more like you're on a beach and let the waves come in and let the waves go out. And then your concentration deepens. So it's the same when you work with a no. You just get relaxed enough that then you can just let no come in and come out. Does this make sense? No. Uh, second, whatever states arise, you want to let no be the first thing that interacts with them. So if boredom arises, let no interact with it before the map interacts with it. When sadness arises, let the no interact with the sadness before you're interacting with the sadness. When frustration comes, when depression comes, let no interact with the depression, with the frustration. And this is, by the way, how you work with all koans. So for example, if your koan, which I taught on retreat uh, two weeks ago, is oak tree in the garden. Then you let oak tree in the garden interact with your family. So oak tree interacts with the people you encounter, oak tree interacts with your eating, and oak tree interacts with your walking. If your koan is original face, then you let original face interact with people when you meet them. 
let original face speak and let original face breathe. If your koan is plum blossoms, then when anger comes, let plum blossoms interact with the anger. When things get really, really tense, you let plum blossoms interact with the tension. By the way, all of these koans are all koans by Joshu also. I didn't say anything about Joshu. Joshu was born in 780, and uh, he studied with a teacher named Nansen and had an experience of awakening. And then, and I love this part, afterwards he continued to study with Nansen for 40 years to polish his understanding. I love this because nowadays you have like some awakening experience, you write the book, you go on Oprah, and like your life is made. But with these traditional openings that people had, they would have a, a life-altering experience where they completely see their life from a different perspective. And then they would work on that for 40 years. Well, um, Joshu is a little bit unique because Joshu um, kept practicing for another 40 years until he was 80. And then when he was 80, he decided to settle down at the Kuan Yin Temple in northern China and start teaching. And he taught for 40 more years. And he died when he was 120. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice if people like me kept their mouth shut until they were 80? And then they started teaching. <laughs> Don't answer that, please. <laughs> Anyways, in the classic koan collections called the Gateless Gate or the Blue Cliff Record, a 10% of all of the koans are Joshu's koans. And he's my favorite. One time a monk asked Joshu, will you show me practice? And Joshu said, go wash your bowls. Usually the koans are like really clever, but Joshu's just so plain. Someone else asked Joshu, What's the meaning of our practice? Has anyone ever had this question? Like, what is the point? Are any of you under this tonight? Like, what is the point of this whole thing? And Joshu pointed outside and said, oak tree in the garden. And imagine in the courtyard there, there would be a gorgeous oak tree. Then the student said to him, Oak tree in the garden? I asked you about something that's inside. I don't want to know about something that's outside. Joshu, tell me about what's inside. And Joshu said, Oak tree in the garden. <laughs> we don't have an oak tree here. But could you imagine this? It's the best part of practicing in the natural world is the natural world does 90% of the teaching and all the teacher has to do is point at it <laughs> and if you really take in the oak tree in the garden from a place of not thinking then you're an oak tree in the garden 
It's like, how are you similar to a rock? Well, just stop thinking. And you'll see. Anyways, uh, Grant assisted me on a retreat recently, and the koan we worked with on the retreat was oak tree in the garden, because there's like a 200-year-old oak tree that was right outside the window, and it was the altar for our retreat. That was our practice. A lot of people had deep experiences, really, studying this oak tree. One, one guy said, this is my favorite moment of the retreat. One, one, one uh, young man said, every morning my whole life I've woken up with dread. And this morning, for the first time, I just woke up. And then I looked across the room, like a, a couple seats over, and Grant was sitting there just beaming. It was like the Mahakashyapa story. Anyways, um, this koan, Does a Dog Have Buddha Nature? Uh, we're just studying a very small part of the koan, so I want to read you the whole koan. Uh, you might be surprised. Uh, here's how it goes. A monk asked Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Joshu said, yes. The student said, then why did it jump into that bag of fur? Can you picture Buddha nature jumping into a bag of fur? Joshu says, it knew what it was doing, and that's why it dogged. <laughs> a little while later, another monk came to Joshu and said, Does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Joshu said, No. The student said, All beings have Buddha nature. Why doesn't a dog have it? Joshu said, because it's beginning to awaken in a world of ignorance. Because it's beginning to awaken in a world of ignorance. So this is the whole story. Uh, we all feel like the most important thing in our life is to have a ground under our feet. A little patch of ground. Uh, sometimes the ground is uh, someone's approval. For most people, that makes up 80% of the ground they think they need. If I just have approval, then everything's okay. For other people, that patch of ground they need to stand on is money, capital. And for others, the ground is just mirroring. When Mu begins to open up, when you really let in this no, then you don't need to rely on that patch of ground. Where people go wrong with the koan is they become intellectual and they focus on the question, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? If you focus on the question, does a dog have Buddha nature or not, then you'll go around in circles. Because that's where the student was coming from, going around in circles, yes or no. So the answer 
is no. But not the no of yes and no. And that no that's not the yes or no no is what we're taking in. It's a gentle kind of no. It's a refusal that's a gentle kind of no. No, no, no. And also, um, it's a navigational no. So it's a no that you use to navigate in a landscape where your GPS doesn't work. If you say, this is ridiculous, I'm not getting anywhere with this koan, I don't like this koan, koans are not for me, this is just a mental game and has no depth, then you're a lot like me. You have to bring the no to those thoughts. Otherwise, it's just like using an old map to try and discover a new map. So if you have some doubt about the koan, then bring no to it. And keep bringing no gently to everything. The way I think of this is old masters have had this sentence, no, or this term, no, that they've been using for 1,200 years, this koan's been used as the first koan. And it's the koan meant to open you up. All the other koans are just to test you afterwards. 999 of them. So a little hint is that first you introduce mu when you're quiet, introduce no. You can say mu or no, whatever you like. I like mu, most people do no. And then start to see that no is in motion. It's not a static no, no, no. That, that the no is interacting with things, that the no is always in motion. Um, I was very, very slow with this koan. Very slow. I kept trying to quit. And then, uh, one night I was on a 10-day retreat with Enkyo Roshi. And she said to me, you're not getting anywhere. <laughs> and I was on the verge of crying. And I said, I know. <laughs> and she said, tomorrow is the last day of this retreat. And I'd been working at different levels with no. And then she said, this part that you're working on, it's been three years now. And tonight's the last night of the retreat. And tomorrow morning, you're going to get it. <laughs> and then she rang her bell. And then I had to leave the room. <laughs> and I had no idea what to do. All I was thought was, what am I going to do? Uh, tomorrow I have to get the koan. And uh, so I stayed up all night. Stayed up all night until I was exhausted. Yeah. And then I won't tell you what happened. But the next day I got the koan. So sometimes you just have to get pushed with the koan. And sometimes you just do the koan in everyday activity, not on retreat. So I wanted to read you a, a little uh, description of working with this koan from Norman Fisher, who was just here. Here's what he says. It doesn't make much difference whether you're practicing with whatever's in front of you or whether you, you're using a phrase like, who is this? What is this? What is love? That may have arisen from the issues in your life right now or whether you're using something from classical Zen, 
like Joshu's Mu. The more you sit with Mu and maintain your sitting and your activity, because like phrases, which are more than phrases, sitting is more than sitting. The more your practice can be continuous and the more will be revealed. I remember many years ago, I was living with Bernie Glassman. We often practiced koans in his bakery, which at the time was his main project and the main project of the Zen Center. The bakery was a crazy place. We had more business than we could handle, and it was always a special time for breakneck effort. Halloween cookies, Christmas cakes, Thanksgiving pies, Valentine's Day cookies. It was always something. We were working very hard from morning till night, and Bernie is tireless and expects everyone else will be tireless too. And we were not professional bakers. In fact, we didn't know anything about baking. We didn't know how to bake, and we were learning as we went along. So it was exhausting work, going very quickly all the time, filling rush orders, doing things right, and of course making hundreds of mistakes and constantly doing things over again. Then, in the middle of all this, Bernie would open up shop for traditional Zen interviews in which the teacher examines the student's understanding of the koan. He'd sit in the manager's office at his desk while you, in your baker's whites, covered in flowers, <laughs> sat in the other room on a chair, taking a few moments to quickly come back in touch with the koan, which had to be right there at your fingertips and easily brought back into consciousness. Then Bernie would ring the bell, you'd go in, you'd respond to him with the koan, and he would respond back, then he'd ring the bell, and you'd run back downstairs into the assembly line as the next person came in. <laughs> Such things are possible. <laughs> so that's another way of working with it. Maybe you can get your manager on board, and at work, you can just run into the office, present the koan, and run back to your desk. So, uh, we begin spiritual life, coming here on Tuesday nights, going on retreats, uh, mostly because we want things to be different. We want to have a better, brighter, shinier life. And we want to stop sabotaging ourselves and our relationships. So we really need to learn how to not be so stressed out all the time. Uh, then we start to see that there's a trick happening, that the more and more we practice, the less and less we want to change. And that the deeper we go in practice, the more resistance there is to practice. If you only have reason and rationality on your side, then you'll always go around in circles analyzing your resistance to practice. So we need to collect something else to help us to move forward in our practice. That's why we use koans. They don't make any sense. You can't analyze them. And for those of you working with koans, you try working on it with your intellectual mind, and you just get frustrated. And you forget to say no to that. And then you believe it. And then you miss looking at the trick. 
You need to see that your thoughts are not so interesting. That your mind is always producing garbage. More garbage than your household. And that you think it's real. So we're learning how to be unconditional with ourselves. In most cultures, dogs are very low on the respect chain. They're not appreciated. So keep that in mind when you work on this koan. That it's about a dog. And dogs in the culture that this koan comes from were underappreciated. So no has everything to do with the way we depreciate ourselves. No has everything to do with the refusal to reject your experience. Refusing to reject your experience is the key that unlocks the gate. Saying no and refusing to reject your experience is the key that unlocks your heart. So go to the frightening thing and sit really sweetly with it. Just like you're sitting on a warm beach. How many of you have a frightening thing that you're running away from again and again and again, that frightening thing? In psychotherapy, we learn that when there's a frightening thing, we track it. We see when it comes up, and we track our judgments around it. In Buddhism, we go one step further. We see that every judgment has a point of reference that it stands on. And that point of reference is what makes it a problem. So we have to be able to see that point of reference. Like the student who said, this morning I just woke up. And that was on the last day of the retreat. Uh, traditionally, the koan is given on the first day of a seven-day retreat. So could you imagine this? First day of retreat. You know, everyone, most people here have been on a retreat. You get on a retreat, and the first day you're just completely freaked out. You're so tired, and you're sore from the car, and you, know, you can't believe who you had to carpool with. <laughs> Thankfully, they're not in your cabin. But you also didn't get the people in your cabin you wanted to get to. And if you come on our retreats, you didn't even get a bathroom in your cabin. So the first day, the teacher gives you a con, and you breathe with it. In your work, in everything that you're doing, you just breathe no. Breathe, no. Breathe, no. I always think about uh, when the Zen teacher Shinra Suzuki died. Shinra Suzuki died on the first day of a seven-day retreat. Could you imagine this? You go on retreat, signed up, everybody's sitting, and your teacher dies. <laughs> this is a true story. This is what happened. They're all sitting... And he died, right there. And then they sat there for six days, six more days. And they did the whole sashin, the whole retreat. 
breathing his life in and out. Breathing their existence in and out. So, I'm not planning on dying. Just so you know about my plans. But this Sangha is changing, this community is changing. And so there's a death of one thing. Uh, some of you have sent me really beautiful gifts. Some of you have written nice notes. Some of you have taken me for tea. Some of you have been angry. Or some of you have repressed your anger because you're trying to be a Buddhist. <laughs> How can he leave? Just when we were falling in love. Because this is what happens with the Dharma, is that when you meet somebody and you meet them through the energy of the Dharma, you might hate them, but you can never leave them. Or you might love them, but you can never leave. You'll see this in your relationships with people you've met here. When you meet with the energy of the Dharma, you can't ever break it. It's not possible. So I encourage you, when you have feelings which are going to change all the time, sweet, bitter, sweet, bitter, around the ending of this experiment, some of you have been around for 10 years. Then you can bring Mu to it. And you can refuse to bring all your old maps to it. And then you know what will happen? You'll be unconditional with yourself. And whatever you feel will be okay. And you don't need someone to make it better. And you don't need someone to make sense of it. Because none of us can make sense of any of this. That's the whole trick with koans. Is they're the same problems that you have in your life that you can't make any sense of. We all have problems in our life that we're paying a lot of money to try and fix. So let me sum up. Number one, does a dog have Buddha nature? Moo. Let moo match your breathing. Right now. Just let moo match your breathing. Number two, if you let moo go very deep in your heart, then when you breathe in and you breathe out moo, there'll be no difference between inside and outside, and there'll be no difference between you and Mu. Number three, if you start to understand the koan, and you start to get it, then remind yourself that with the great questions of life, you have no clue. 
I remember sending Roshi an uh, email once saying, I got it, let's meet. And I was, you know, wanting her to say, okay, Friday or whatever. Because what I used to do is I used to, as soon as I had enough airline points, I would just go to New York. And yeah, sometimes I would just go meet her for 10 minutes in an interview. And then I would just come straight home. And this is how I did koans with her. And so I said, I think I've got it. And she wrote back saying, as soon as you think you get it, you don't have it. Get in touch down the road. <laughs> she also told me once that when you start doing koans with students, you lose half of them. <laughs> because what happens is you get something and you start getting challenged and then like you don't want to do it. So, number four. Um, the thing about koans is the same as death, which is that it's inescapable. The koan's inescapable. At some point, you need to look at it. So I encourage everyone to start. Number five. I'm trying to give you tips. You might hear some and you might miss some, but they're all little angles you can. The fifth thing is, with other people, when you have a problem, you can work it out with them, and, you can, and, and they can help you soften the problem. But with meditation practice, there's no other. <laughs> like with koans, there's no other. So mu's not going to change itself for you. So it's really a mirror, a refusal. And last, the great strength of this tradition, the great strength of this lineage, is that it looks like it's heading towards the light, but it's actually doing everything it can to capture your bruised heart. You feel like you're getting free, but actually it's doing everything it can to put you back in your body again. So it works exactly the same way that love works, I think. When you take a risk and you really love somebody, you're going to get tangled up in thorns. Love just does this. It scratches us and bruises us. So that's why we try to avoid it. Intimacy is the thing that we all crave. It's why we have a spiritual practice. And it's the thing that will do anything to sabotage. Because if we really love, it's going to screw up all of our maps. Thankfully. And then when this happens and you're open to it, you might have more compassion for your imperfections. A monk asked Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature? No. Why did the jo dog jump into that hairy bag? Why did it dog? When you look at the ocean, which I've been doing for the last week, I was just teaching in British Columbia, and I was writing this talk staring at the ocean. 
And when you look at the ocean, it's just the ocean. Why did the ocean jump into that liquid? Why did it blue? And you can only intuit this by getting really close to it. And the closer you get to it, the more you'll ache. And the more your heart will open up. We do so much pretending to care about things. It's kind of exhausting how much pretending we do. And pretending obscures a deeper love for our lives. So forgive yourself. Accept who you are. We have so many crazy ideas of what a happy person is. A poster of the Dalai Lama on your fridge. They have to wear robes. They have to be Asian. They have to be celibate. Moo means that you can be here right now, just as you are. And there's nothing wrong with you. And you can stop seeing your life as a series of mistakes. Also, Moo has a political function. To get engaged with our society, we need to be less critical with self-talk and more critical with systems of power. And as long as we keep going in circles, talking negatively to us, we're powerless. But it's a surplus powerlessness. It's not being powerless because there's so much power out there. It's powerless because we're doing it to ourselves. And we need a practice that interrupts this. So when we say no, we're refusing and we're opening at exactly the same time. We say no to criticism. We say no to the critical corporate state. And we see that love can overthrow the corporate state. It depends on us. If this community has been anything, it's a community of peacemakers. <coughs> so we are the people we've been waiting for all this time. So thank you very much. Let's stand up and stretch our legs and then we can talk.